This morning we are in Exodus chapter 7. Okay, Exodus chapter 7, starting in, uh, we're going to read the first seven verses and then, well, we will read the entire chapter before it's all over. So Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In, in this first section, God is set, setting expectations um, for Moses. So this is, we've read through this before, but I'm, I'm looking at it and we're actually going to start with the plagues today. So Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, it says, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So there's several things that Moses is saying, uh, is being told. Moses and Aaron are being told. They're being told, one, that they're going to go do this and God, God is not going to just immediately pull them out when they do their first step of obedience. They're going to be in Egypt for a little while longer. And Pharaoh is not going to listen to them. But he says one of the reasons for this is God wants the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord. So that by the time he stretches out his hand on Egypt and brings out the children of Israel from among them, the Egyptians will say, there is a God in heaven and they are following that God. He is fighting for them. So there is, there's expectations being set. God wants the Egyptians to know that there is a God in heaven. Now the Egyptians have many gods. And so what we're about to read and see here is the interaction. And it's something that we can learn from this. So in uh, verse 8, Exodus 7 verse 8, it says, Then... The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod, cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. In a fascinating way, it seems that the culture of Egypt is expecting to see a sign and a wonder. They're expecting if Moses and Aaron are going to come and say, this is in the name of the Lord, they're going to say, okay, which God is it? How powerful? What can you do? It seems that they're expecting this. Because the magicians, later, in, when Nebuchadnezzar comes to the, to, to the magicians and the wise men, when, when Darius comes to the, in, in, Egypt, uh, in, in Babylon later, sometimes the wise men and such will come to him and say, no one has ever asked for something like this before. But these magicians don't say that. They just come in. They're expecting some sort of a showdown. And so I'm wondering if in those days with all the different 
gods that they had, if there weren't seasons that certain gods were brought in, and so in the season of your God, you would come and you would do the signs and wonders that your God was capable of doing, and they would like maybe potentially even have you know, a god rodeo where they would come together and, and see who can do the most magic tricks. I don't know this. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, because they're not shocked or surprised when Pharaoh says, hey, come, see what this guy's doing, and they're like, hmm, snake, snake, and they just do it. And then because Aaron's rod actually eats the serpent, I want to say and suggest that we are potentially dealing with sleight of hand, but we're also potentially dealing with actual demonic forces. And so it's important to keep that in mind. It's not just that they're playing tricks. Maybe they are, but they are also potentially actually using demonic forces to accomplish certain things. Because the enemy is, pa- is able to do a, a certain amount of things. So I remember about 20 years ago, I was, this was a professor from Dallas Seminary, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary was preaching, Howard Hendricks, and he said this, and it stuck with me at the time, because he said, young people today aren't asking, is the Bible true? They're asking, does it work? And so I remember thinking as a young man myself that yes, that's, that's a, you know, I was thinking, well, that's kind of a good question. And, and I remember mulling on that. I wrote it down when he was speaking that day and I wrote it down and, and this thought has gone with me. Does the Bible work? And so what I wanted to touch on today is the fact that yes, our faith in God needs to function. It has to work. However, the enemy of God has quite a few powers that can amaze us. And so we must actually ask, is this the truth of God? Jesus said that he was the way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Um, If you look at Proverbs 14, 12, 14, um, yeah, 14, 12, Proverbs 14.12, and it's, it's repeated again over in 16.25, but Proverbs 14.12, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so in my brief sojourn upon the earth, having lived in America all my life and not having seen very many people who are 100% sold out to Satan and have only seen a few people who have bought into some things, some types of witchcraft and some types of other things. I have seen enough to know that the enemy has some power. And so what happens is, if I'm asking, does it work? And you say, oh, you should see what happens when we go out in the woods and we create an altar to Satan and we put the right things on here and we worship Satan, at, at, the, at the right sign of the moon and we do all of these things, you should see. And I remember at, um, we had a girl that was part of our character club at one point and, and she, she started distancing herself from our club, which was a very Christian, very overtly Christian evangelistic club. And I spoke with her later at an event and she says, well, she had decided to become Wiccan because they have real power. And so she had been dabbling with Wiccan things and had discovered that there was some actual power that was available. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. Let's continue reading here, 14, uh, verses 14 down through the end there. So this is the first plague. 
So Pharaoh's heart has grown hard. Now in verse 14 it says, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die. The river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, over all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So several interesting things to note is that the water in the river turned to blood, but if you dug beside the river, you could get the water to filter back through the sand or whatever and actually get clean water again. And so this is what the Egyptians were doing. They were having to dig new holes, new places to filter this. But the enchantments of the magicians, they come and they also turn water to blood. Now what you have to realize is Aaron goes, and the water in the river is turned to blood. He, he does this and it says that the water in the, in the Take your rod, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, rivers, ponds, all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And it even says at the end of that verse 19, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And so he is turning water to blood. So when the Egyptian magicians want to make blood, they have to first go find some water. And so they're not coming up to a river and turning the river into blood. They have a little bit in a cup or a pitcher or something, a bucket, and they're doing something to that water and turning it to blood. So let's just say, for the sake of our argument, that the enemy himself, Satan, is using the enchantments of the Egyptians and he is actually turning it into blood. He's still not doing what Moses and Aaron did because they did all the water and the magicians did some water in a little cup. But this is an important point. When, so, so think, think about this. The water is being turned to blood. God actually brings it to Pharaoh. Like God says, Moses, go out, meet Pharaoh. Be at the river when he gets there. So he's out there, Moses shows up. I mean, Pharaoh shows up, Moses is there. The whole scene starts. 
So God turns it to blood on a wide scale, and the magicians on a much smaller scale. It's containers versus rivers. And when it comes to faith, false religions need to get only one small thing right to mislead many. But Christianity and the Gospels must get everything right. And you'll notice this when you, if you talk to someone about your faith and if they're agnostic or skeptic, they will go looking for a place, any place, because if they can disprove you in one little point, they will think they've got you. But when you ask them why they are where they are and what they're doing where they, they, all they will cite is one thing. And often it's one feeling they had or one bad experience they had over here. And so I think this is important to realize is that the enemy will come along and give someone enough power because the enemy is very limited, but he is very, he is powerful, but he's limited. And so if he can do one magic trick, if he can do one thing, we say, wow, there must be something to this because look what they just did. And so I think of my own background. We had a lot of things that people later had to come free from. So we had enough people playing with the Ouija board to know that it could create serious emotional and demonic bondage. We had people, and this is, this is a controversial one, but it was, it was illustrated over and over in my background. We had people who were able to water witch, but when they came to Christ and, and resisted the enemy, that power went away. And for some of them, when they went back to it, it brought along with it other trappings of, of the demonic. And so there's, and then we had the, the brauch doctor, the healers, the doctors who would come and they would mutter and do certain things. And with that came a lot of times real darkness for little children. So a lot of children would be introduced to it when they were tiny and were sick and either their uncle or the grandfather or the grandmother, somebody would come and mutter the, the spells and do the things with it. And the child would, in retrospect, say from that day on, um, either it was horrible nightmares or it was other things that would happen. And when they come to Christ and they found freedom, they were able to rebuke that and it was gone. But there was some healing there, enough so that people kept calling for these witch doctors. And so you'll see this around the world where there's just enough power in witchcraft where people will keep turning back to it and say, but look, there's power here. I feel it. And this is really important for us to see because the children of Israel and the children of Egypt are here and it is entirely possible at this juncture for a family in Egypt to say, you know what? I don't want to serve the gods of Egypt. I want to serve the one true God. And what I'm seeing coming through Moses and Aaron, I want to follow that. And they can, they can completely go along with them and it would eventually become part of Israel. They can go along. We see it in different junctures where people from the outside come and join in. The biggest problem was the times when the Israelites would marry into people on the outside who did not leave their false gods behind. 
they would bring their false gods along, and God was very opposed to this. And so, back to the thought that Satan has power. It's limited, yes, but it's still power. And all he has to do is one thing. One thing. I'm going to turn this water to blood in this little bowl. Wow, look, he has power. What had God just done? He had turned all the water into blood. Who's the actual winner here? Who actually has the most power? Well, this is important to think about because we, you know, we were out, I've spent a lot of times outdoors in the mountains the last couple of weeks. And I've just seen the creation of God. I've seen the clouds, the stars at night, the, the, the running water, the mountains, the trees, the flowers, the animals. There's so much detail. And God created all of this by his mighty hand. And the enemy will come along and will try to illustrate one small point and say, see, it's God is a liar. Because look, I've, I've, I've done this one little thing. And so the enemy will continually try to get people to take their eyes off of the absolute grandeur of what God has done and is capable of doing and get you to focus on the one thing that he is able to do. And through that, deceive you and take you captive. And so I think of, uh, there's been many times, and I, you know, I still hear, I will hear believers today still where they are like, well, um, you know, we prayed for this, we tried medicine, other things, but then I went and did this, whatever the procedure is, and I immediately had results. See, there's power there. And I, I'm always so cautious on those things because all it takes and, and this is a point that I think is necessary for us to realize is that when we are warned about the snares of the devil, a snare is not something you see and willingly walk into. A snare is something that you don't see and yet it trips you up and it captures you. And so there are times in our life when we are walking along and we are ensnared by either the things of the world or the things of the enemy and it's important to recognize that I cannot be, uh, that I can be in a position of not realizing that I'm about to be ensnared and still be ensnared. I can have good intentions and still be ensnared. I can have a lot of other things correct, but if I walk through the snare, I can still be ensnared. So it's important for me to not rely on my good intentions. It's important for me to not only expect that I can stand and say, well, I didn't do it on purpose, and therefore I'll be free. The, the way that the enemy works, he's trying to trap us. So we want to be careful that we're not buying into the one thing that the enemy is doing. And here is a good example of this. Many, many times, the, something will happen to us, and it will happen to us in context of church, or context of our faith, context of our family and someone will tell us that this is a gift from God or that it is a or that God has has done this right and there is a very simple method of looking at the gifts of God and knowing whether this is something from the Holy Spirit or whether it's not if you're given a gift and it brings you grief and it brings you sorrow, and it brings you distress, and it brings you pain and many other things, 
I think we need to be careful calling that a gift because when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, it is love, joy, peace. When the Father speaks to his children, that's us, and he gives us something, there is a deep, settled peace. When we are assigning something, saying, well, this is what's happening to me, and I think God gave me this, but it is not bringing the deep, settled peace, it is not bringing the joy, and it is not bringing love, we need to question, is this gift really from God, or is this the enemy coming in with his little bowl of water and turning it into blood and saying, see, I have power? Because I think the church in America, while scoffing at the witch doctors of, the, of other nations and other countries and continents, is entirely entrapped by the wiles of the enemy. And we've walked into it. And so what are we supposed to do? There are so many ways that we can be entrapped. Well, according to James 4, let's go read it there. James 4, verses 7 through 10. We're given some instructions and I, the way that James writes this is not, it's not written as a, oh, so there is a enemy and he is out here and there is a potential chance that you might run into him. It's, he is writing from an assumption that you will run into the enemy. And so the assumption is that you're going to run into the enemy Sooner or later, you will be encountering the enemy and probably already have been. And he's probably already been shooting his arrows at you. He's probably already been setting snares for you. And maybe you have escaped all of them. Maybe someone else has been praying for you and has helped you escape. Maybe there are others who have helped rescue you because this is possible within our faith. But James is assuming that you're going to run into, you're going to encounter the wiles of the enemy. And he says this, James chapter four, verse seven, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The the, the place that humility plays in this is huge. I have multiple times talked with people, I've been to seminars and such, where those who are, all, who are constantly helping others find freedom will give a list and they will say, here is a list of things that are often accepted into Christian homes that actually bring bondage. And at that moment, we have an option because what will often happen is someone will say, oh, I've already done that, didn't affect me at all. No, I don't think so. And they'll walk away. When in reality, it may be that God has sent a messenger into your life, a Moses and an Aaron saying, there is a great God in heaven who has all the power, who has all the ability to make you free. So do not scoff at his messenger who says, this is bondage. And so there's just almost always something on the list that comes a little too close to home for any American Christian. And they will read over the list and will be like, oh, you know what, I, this over here, yes, I see that, I see that, but over, like if you read uh, Neil Anderson's Bondage Breaker, he will talk about very specific things. And most American Christians will take issue with something that he writes about. Uh, when 
recently when I, uh, Steve Stutzman was writing from a Mennonite perspective about the things that bring ensnarement to a lot of the Anabaptist communities, there were immediately a bunch of people coming on saying, well, I don't think this is a problem. I don't think this is a problem. And all Steve was saying is, I have seen people confess this, where it says, cleanse your hands, you, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. When people confessed it and set it aside, suddenly the fruit of the Spirit was alive in them. And so what is hard for us to understand is that fear in us or lust or pride or anger can all be rooted to something, some lie that we have believed of the enemy and it is bearing fruit in our lives and if we can go back and root it out, and so this is why people who work with deliverance will often ask you to go clean your house. They want you to go through your house and say, what is it? Is it an author that you've read that you have believed? Is it some games you've played that you thought were innocent? What is it in your house that is actually causing you to be in bondage to the enemy where the fruit of the Spirit is lacking and instead you have the fruit of the enemy, where you have fear, you have anxiety, you have lust, you have pride, you have, you've got anger, you've got all these other, uh, the, the, the various fruit of the flesh, so to say, speak. And so it's important for us to humble ourselves and say, it is possible that I have ensnared myself, that I have walked into a snare, and that I might need to clean house. And so I do want to draw near to God. I do want to resist the devil. I do want to submit to God. I want to cleanse my hands. I want to purify my heart. I want to humble myself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. John chapter eight, verse 32. Simply stated, but a beautiful, beautiful truth. John chapter 8, and it's verse, I'm not in the right place here, okay. It's got to be, it's my handwriting that I'm trying to read. John chapter 6. <laughs> I definitely wrote that. So John 8, um, it ends, so the verse I'm looking for, I think is verse 36. But we'll start, so verse 31 down to verse 36. Oh, and there it is, right there in verse 32. Yeah, John 8, 32, that's what I'm looking for. I was right the first time, but I doubt it because it's pretty messed up on my notes over here. So in verse 31, John 8, 31. It says, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Which I think is a ridiculous argument, by the way, because they've been in bondage all the time to many different nations. 
Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. And so the question as we look at As we look at the blood turning into water, the question that I come up with, uh, for instance, it is so different for us than it is for the Egyptians. The Egyptians were dealing with some very specific things. They had a god of the Nile. They had a fish goddess. They had multiple gods, really, for each of these elements. But they had a god of the Nile. They had a god, a fish goddess. And so what, is, what does God do? He comes, turns the blood, the, the river into blood, and it kills the fish, and it destroys the Nile. And it goes on for seven days. There is not a person in Egypt that is not impacted by this. After seven days. And so this is, this is a huge deal in Egypt. It's a weird kind of thing when I, when I stop and think, okay, Lord, so you just go down and you say, let's turn it all to blood, okay? That's disgusting. But like, it's an odd way. Like, can we just start with thunder and lightning hitting some statue, some idol somewhere? But we start with the waters being turned to blood. And so the God Happy and the God Hatment, I'm not sure I'm saying those correct, are directly affected and they have no power. And so what the magicians do is they say, oh, your God can turn water to blood? Oh, here we go, so can ours. And so they do something on a small scale. And so now here we are looking at it. We're not Egyptians. We're not accustomed to worshiping the God of the Nile or the God of the fish, the goddess of the fish. So it doesn't really Applied, we're not looking at it going, wow, that makes so much sense from our perspective, looking at water being turned to blood. In fact, when we think about blood and water, we think about the crucifixion of Christ, we think about uh, several other things Jesus said at different times, and, and, and you know, we must be born again, born of water and the Spirit, and, and we have these other things. So I think we have to go deeper than just the external and say, okay, what is this? And I think that is where we come to, there will be people in your life who will say, well, it's true. And the question is not, as, as Howard Hendricks was saying, that the young people were asking, is it true? Is the Bible true? Or, or they were not asking that anymore. They were asking, does it work? We need to be careful when we say, does it work? Because let's say that you're not feeling well and someone says, here, if you'll sniff this powder up your nose, you'll feel better or something, right? They'll give you a drug. They'll give you something. And, and someone says, oh, that doesn't work. And they say, oh, yes, it does. And does it work? Well, yes. Is it good? Is it right? Is it from God? Is this the way I'm supposed? Well, that's a different question. And so within your faith, within your practice of Christianity, there will be times when people will say, hey, I've discovered a secret. Not everyone knows it. But if you do this, this will happen. And sometimes those secrets are not truth. They're not the truth of Scripture. They are something that has been brought in 
to our Christianity that works. And we look at it and we say, wow, that works. This is awesome. And then we're in bondage. And we don't understand why we're in bondage. We don't understand why we're unable to actually see the hand of God at work, why people aren't coming to Christ. We don't see all of this, and, and maybe it's something in ourselves. We don't understand why we can't walk in the fruit of the Spirit, why we can't walk in the joy of the Lord. And Jesus said to those who fancied themselves to be the freest people on earth, even though they were in bondage to Rome at the time, he says, if... You abide in me, in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so I think of us, and I want us to be free. I want us to actually walk in freedom. To not be enamored by the little bowls and pitchers of buckets of blood, but to understand that there is a God in heaven who's able to do all of it at once. But in order to do that, we have to be aware that there is an enemy, that he has some power, and it doesn't matter if it's limited or not, because if he's able to do one thing and hoodwink us, then we have a problem. We want to walk in the truth. We want to be with Christ, the way, the truth, the life. And we want to be careful that we don't find a way that seems right to us but its end is the way of death. We want to walk in the way, the truth, and the life. So we must resist the devil. We must draw near to God. And if we find in us that we have become enamored with some trick of the magicians, with something that is not the truth of God and the truth of Scripture, that we must then confess that. We must cleanse our hands. We must re- we must rebuke the enemy in that. We must repent of it, turn to God, and ask him for deliverance. And this is the bizarre thing. Years ago, I was listening to a number of different accounts of people who had gone in for the, 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 the healing from the, the Amish and Mennonite witch doctors. And so they would, they, had, they would say, well, I went in because I had this issue. And they dealt with it, and I was fine. I didn't have that issue anymore. But you've been sick a lot. Well, yes, but not with that. I had several other issues. So on the day that they would renounce that and say, I was wrong, I was not seeking Christ, I was seeking power because I saw something that worked, I thought. And so the day they would renounce that and resist the enemy on that and submit to God and and seek freedom, a lot of times their earliest symptoms from their other disease that they thought had been gone for years would suddenly be back and all the other health issues would be gone again, and they would have that one issue left. And so what began happening, though, is that the believers would gather around and would pray very specifically and lay hands on each other and ask God for mercy and healing for that disease. And it was amazing how many times God would heal them with no sudden surprise other side effect diseases, and they would just be free and they would have clarity of mind and clarity of thought and clarity of spiritual experience that was phenomenal because they were only trusting in the Lord. Sometimes 
after the original sickness came back and the others was gone, they would actually end up going into a doctor and actually receive medical treatment that would bring them health and healing in a, in a, in a good way as well. So I don't want to suggest that you have to only always pray and not ever use the doctors and the medical system because God invented the whole system. The way it works is amazing how God works things together. So I just want to encourage us to examine ourselves and to say, is there something that I saw and said, well, that works, and that was my only criteria for doing it? Because we don't want to only have that criteria. Does it work? Because we want to know, is this of God? So we need discernment. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must resist the devil. We must draw near to God. We must cleanse our hands. We must draw, humble ourselves before him. And in this way, we will know the truth, and the truth shall make us free. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and Lord, I thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, there are many accounts that we could share of people who have fallen snare to the devil because of something that worked because of some miracle that we saw or something that we couldn't explain away. But Lord, you've given us your word and your word is truth. And we want to walk in complete freedom. We want to walk in complete dependence on you. So we submit ourselves to you now and Lord, I do resist the devil on behalf of all of us here and everyone who's listening, that the enemy would have to back off and leave us alone. And Father, we ask you for discernment, that you would show us if there's anything in our life that needs to be broken off. And then, Father, as we submit to you and resist the devil and cleanse our hands, Lord, would you give us that power to, to turn to you and the power to repent and the power to receive from you true healing, true victory. Because you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are more powerful than all the works of darkness over any God of the earth, Lord. You are more powerful because all things that exist were created by you. Father, we thank you, we love you, we draw near to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.